I'm going to give you a little bit of an anecdote from my own um, history. There was a time uh, when we thought that if, if so-and-so would just get saved, just imagine the impact they would have for Christ. Have you ever thought along those lines before? Usually we were talking about, at least in my experience, we were talking about some celebrity or some, of some sort. And then in 2004, along came the movie The Passion of the Christ. And it's hard to get across to people today um, just how big a celebrity Mel Gibson was in the 80s and 90s. When the news about the movie first came out, I remember... Um, he started to do interviews saying, I'm a believer. And people in my circles, at least, were excited. It's really happening. We believed that one of Hollywood's biggest names was going to give Christianity the boost that it needed. Revival was certainly at hand. Well, we overlooked the possible Second Commandment violations in the movie, as well as the outright extra-biblical theology that was presented and even designed to be used as a tool for converting Protestants to Roman Catholicism. And as church groups, we went to the theaters to buy tickets and watch the film, and then we assembled back in our small groups to discuss the ways in which we could buy more tickets and convince friends and family and neighbors to go watch the film too, just as Hollywood wanted us to, <laughs> because we believed the marketing hype. We were quick to to overlook the theological error and even possible blasphemy because somebody might get saved watching it. This is not really a criticism of a movie. Certainly we believed, though, if they would just watch this movie, revival would grip our land. This was thanks to Mel Gibson, we thought. God finally saved the right celebrity. And then he went and got drunk and said some pretty vile anti-Semitic things to a police officer after a car accident. Then he left his wife of many years and had a child with a much younger girlfriend. And then he went and said some really hateful and terrible things about her that were recorded and released to the media. And then revival didn't break out. And the film ended up, as most movies do, in the $5 bin at Walmart. And we realized that maybe Mel Gibson wasn't our savior after all. Maybe it's Johnny Cash. Maybe it was Alice Cooper. Or that guy from the band Korn. Or Bono. Or Willie and Jason Phil. Or any number of other well-known celebrities who have gone and made some sort of profession of faith. Have made some sort of connection to Jesus and the church. Some of them even real. But what if, and hear me out here because I think this is where it really gets interesting, what if that's not the way that God typically works? What if it's not about whether Mel Gibson is a, is a genuine believer despite his heretical theology? What if it's not about the big names or even the celebrity preachers that we look up to and, and sometimes wish that we lived closer to so that we could go to their church? What if God chooses the foolish 
the weak, the low, and despised in the world in order to accomplish his purposes, to bring salvation to the ends of the earth, to gather to himself a people for his own possession, to bring judgment even and shame upon his enemies who have rejected him. What if that's how God usually works? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. 1 Corinthians 1.26 says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were, no, uh, were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Pray with me. Lord, I pray that you would feed us from your word this morning. Nourish our hearts and our souls that we might focus on you but not only, Lord, to gain head knowledge, not only to learn something academic, but to be transformed into the image of Christ. By the renewal of our minds, Lord, I pray that you would change the way that we think as we are conformed to Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we conclude chapter 1 here this morning of 1 Corinthians, as we've been working through this book here now for a little bit, we need to be reminded that, that Paul is building his argument by continuing to undermine the, the pride and the disunity of the Corinthian church. Remember, these saints in this Greek city of Corinth, they've been quarreling about their favorite preachers. They've been evaluating those preachers based on worldly terms, terms that are typical in their Greek culture. Remember, this was the same culture that gave us those ancient philosophers, Plato, Socrates, Aristotle. Public speeches and debates were part of their society, and, and the best speakers, the best debaters were lifted up, and they were made into the, the heroes and celebrities of their day. They developed followings, disciples even. They developed schools of thought, some of which even exist today. The Corinthian saints, the Christians there at Corinth, had their favorite preachers, and as I said, they evaluated them based on their, on their eloquent wisdom, on their rhetorical public speaking skill. Yet these preachers that they were arguing over, they all preached the same foolish message of the gospel. And so in this entire passage of 1 Corinthians, of this letter, Paul is laying out a radically different worldview or perspective, shaped not by, not by worldly wisdom, but by the foolishness of the cross. Because as we saw in the previous passage, verses 18 to 25, really starting in verse 17, the word of the cross destroys the wisdom of this world. And even it saves those who believe as it is preached both to Jews and to Gentiles, it reveals the utter folly of worldly wisdom. In our own current day, 
Uh, worldly wisdom tells us that science saves. This is the current belief. Put your trust in the science. But science is, by nature, always developing, right? Is science authoritative? It can be. Gravity is authoritative. But we also have to define science. Because psychology and sociology and even political science, all of the the soft sciences, so-called, they're also increasingly being included in the categories of science that the world is demanding that we put our trust in. In fact, those soft sciences, science that is subjective and and feelings-based, those soft sciences have begun to exert authority even over established medical science. We can see this every time we turn on the news. And so the Scripture here shines a light on our trust in ourselves or really in, in worldly wisdom by pointing out that salvation comes to us through the the foolishness of the preached word of the cross. And Paul proves his point here in this next section by reminding the Corinthians of their own salvation. So, So think about your own salvation for just a moment. Think of your life apart from Christ. This is a tactic, actually, that Paul uses in many of his letters to consider what you were before Christ and what you are now. For example, let me give you two examples. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13, 14, and 15. He, he says to the church at Colossae, he says this, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You were dead, he says, but God made you alive together with the risen Christ. He says the same thing in Ephesians. You're probably familiar with this passage. I read it every week. (laughs) Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy." Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Now, passages like that, Colossians and Ephesians, they're helpful because they remind us that uh, that without Christ, we are completely dead in our trespasses and sins. Or as Peter says in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, he says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received God's mercy. But unlike the Colossians, unlike the Ephesians who needed to be reminded of their depravity, the Corinthians don't need that reminder. In fact, we're going to see later in the letter In some ways, at least, they're still wallowing in their depravity. 
Instead, the Corinthians need to be reminded of their old worldly status, what they were before in the eyes of the world. Paul doesn't say to the Corinthians, at least not right here, you were dead. He says to them, you were nobodies. You were nobodies. As he reminds them here of their old status. Look at their old status in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. We should keep in mind, even as we were reminded last week, and also we saw as we began our study of 1 Corinthians and looked just at who this author is, the Apostle Paul, Paul here is not looking down on them from some some high and lofty position of full sanctification, of, of utter holiness. He calls them brothers. Brethren is really what it is. Brothers and sisters. My people, he says. My family. He's identifying with them. And he's encouraging them to think back on their own calling. Remember verse 2. Look look back at chapter 1, verse 2. This is who he is writing to as he's addressing his letter. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. They've been called to be saints by Christ himself, just as Paul was, just as you have been, and me, We have been called by Christ himself. We have been united not only with one another, but with with Paul and with all of those who also call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's interesting about this call to salvation is that they were called in the same way that everyone was. Since faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, Paul preached to them as he did in every place that he visited. He preached the gospel to them. For example, Paul wrote this to the Galatians. This is in Galatians chapter 3. He says, It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul did the same thing to the Galatians that he did to the Corinthians. He portrayed, he publicly portrayed Jesus Christ as crucified. He died for their sins. Now in Galatians, Paul is, he's particularly upset because they're turning to a works-based salvation. But the message is the same. He proclaimed Christ crucified. And he says to them, as he says to the Corinthians, remember your salvation. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, he tells Timothy this. He says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. You and me, Timothy, he's saying. You and me. He gave us these things. He, called, he saved us. He called us. Not because of us, but because of Him. The foolishness of the cross and the preaching of the gospel has been carried to the fools who've heard it. 
without regard for their worthiness, without regard for their social standing, God saved them. He overlooked their lack of of spiritual merit. He overlooked their lack of of celebrityness. He overlooked their lack of an innate potential to be a great social media influencer. And he saved them anyway. He saved them. Consider what Moses said to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. He says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And you know what? The same is true for us. It's not because we were great. It's not because we were awesome. It's because he loved us. Because he said that he would save. Because he promised to send a redeemer. These Corinthian saints here were nobodies, just like the ancient Israelites were nobodies. And to illustrate this, Paul now uses, he he kind of highlights three aspects of their pre-calling status. So three characteristics of their life before Christ. And he says that, that for the most part, most of them were not wise, powerful, or of the nobility, uh, or, or we might say well-born, born into the right families. And while Paul is, one thing that we should remember, while Paul is painting with a broad brush here, we should be careful to see that he's describing most of the saints at Corinth. It's possible, and maybe even likely, that there were some Christians in Corinth who, had, who came from the upper crust of society, typically Uh, Those would be the ones that owned big homes and the church would meet in their home. That's often what would happen, at least in some of the other places. But Paul says here that most of them did not come from the upper crust of society. Most of them did not. And these three characteristics really describe the most esteemed elements of their society. So the wise... Look at this again in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, and not many were of noble birth. The wise, these were those who were the most um, kind of clever, the most well-read, the most well-educated in society. They were those who were the most capable of public speaking, of giving speeches, of going on TV and giving their opinions on this current event or that political development. These are the ones who would write op-ed pieces in the New York Times. The powerful obviously held sway or power over others, and that power typically comes from either either wealth or political connections or even some measure of celebrity, probably all three. And then there are those of noble birth, those who were born into the right families. They had the right last name. Maybe they came from a family that that owned much of the land or employed most of the people or or controlled trade or in, in biblical times especially owned the most slaves. There's no doubt that Paul is concerned that these Corinthian Christians were of danger of falling into the idolatry of the age, looking up to those who were the most wise, the most powerful, the most noble. 
that they would simply create a, a new segment of society that looked just like the rest of society in that they thought too highly of themselves. Essentially, what they were doing was creating a, a Christian version of the Greek philosophy by, by claiming to be followers of the best teachers. Instead of following Plato or Aristotle, they were following Paul or Apollos or Cephas or even Jesus himself. But Christianity isn't just simply an alternative philosophy or an alternative system of belief and, and thinking, even though even today the world continues to tell us that that's all it is. That's good for you. That's good for you, but I believe this. That's not what Christianity is. And yet the point that Paul is really establishing and emphasizing here is that these saints have been called, justified, glorified, despite their community status, despite being nobodies. In fact, they were God's choice, he says. God's choice. Look at verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Three times in these verses, Paul emphasizes the truth that salvation is God's choice. Do you see it? God chose, God chose, God chose, he says. God chose every single one of them. So often we try to explain this away by saying something to the effect of, well, God issues the call and it's to everyone, but that's not what this says. Specifically, God chose the weak. God chose the foolish. God chose those who were nobodies. God chose what is foolish and weak and low or despised. He did not choose the others. God chose those individuals whom no one had judged as being worthy of attention. And he made them bearers of his kingdom. He gave them the right to be called children of God. When it comes to salvation and God's choice, I can't help but think of men like Mephibosheth from the Old Testament. Jonathan's handicapped son. Do you remember Mephibosheth? He had been secreted away into hiding in fear for his life when David had been given the throne. And in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 6 to 8, David finds Mephibosheth and he brings him to himself. And Mephibosheth, is, he's convinced that he's going to be put to death because he's a threat to David's kingdom. And in verse 6 of 2 Samuel chapter 9, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore you all, to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Every other king... Every other king of any other nation would have looked at Mephibosheth as a threat to the kingdom. But David gave him a seat at his own table. David brought him into his family. David gave him honor and dignity and even an inheritance. I'm going to give you back your father and your grandfather's land. This is, this is what Jesus does for us in salvation. We are foolish 
We are weak. We are low and despised. We are dead dogs. And Christ says, you shall eat at my table always. Why? Why does he do that? The only way to answer that is to say for the glory of his own name. That we might respond in worship and thanksgiving. Now, as we continue here, we need to be careful because we could develop, as some have, a, um, what we sometimes call a poverty theology, a, a theology that says that, that poor people are somehow more important to God or in some other way more noble than those who are not poor. See, not only were the wise, the strong, and the well-born not chosen because of their status, so also the foolish, weak, and despised were not chosen simply on account of their low standing in society. In other words, God doesn't only save people of a certain status because they are of that status. God chooses whom he pleases in order to accomplish his will. He chose the Corinthians in order to accomplish his will. Listen to Romans chapter 9. Verse, beginning in verse 13, it says this, As it is written, Paul writes, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now consider that, the words of God, of two brothers. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Hated means um, hated. That's what it means. And so Paul has to address this. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth, so that he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. But, but we have to stay with this. Because those who have now been, been humbled by what God, Paul has just said of them, these Christians in, in Corinth who have been humbled, you're low, you're weak, you're despised, they're now shown what privilege is theirs as the chosen of God. Paul is not just simply trying to bring them down a notch. He's trying to show them, look, it's so much bigger than what this world has to offer. The wisdom of this world is foolishness compared to the foolishness of God. God did not choose them to make them strong and rich or powerful in a worldly sense. He chose them to turn the world upside down with the gospel. He chose them to completely upend the world's values and, and systems of salvation. He chose the foolish because the wise think that the cross is utter folly as a means of saving others. The wise of this world believe that the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ, that he went to the cross for our sins, that that is utter foolishness to save other people. He chose the weak because the powerful of this world think that they are enough without God. He chose the low and despised because the high and mighty are too good to need salvation and certainly not from a crucified Messiah. But these verses are also bringing God's judgment on the earth or upon his enemies. Do you see that? Listen to the prayer of Psalm 6. 
verses 8, 9, and 10. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Or consider Psalm 83. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek. Let me start that again. Fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. In choosing these Corinthians to save, God has already begun the, really the final vindication of his name over his enemies, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, and in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. We should praise the Lord that our knees will bend and our tongues will confess out of thanksgiving and joy and not due to judgment and wrath. Right? We should praise God that as his children, we get to proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord out of joy and thanksgiving because of what he has done for us. And just one other minor point here. Uh, throughout the scriptures, God, God consistently chooses the most unlikely of people. Does he not? I mean, we could look around the room and say, God consistently chooses the most unlikely of people. And a lot of them are here. Right? But we could see this all throughout scripture as well. Consider, for example, probably one of the most unlikely Mary, chosen to be the mother of Jesus. She understood this. She understood that God chose the most unlikely of people. She understood it as a young girl when the angel first appeared to her. In Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55, she proclaimed this. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Look at verse 29 again. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. When Mary proclaims, when she says, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. She's just stating a fact. 
Who am I? I'm nobody. But God is blessing me because of what he's about to do through my body, through my motherhood, she says. This is all the work of the Lord. As believers, we cannot boast in our choice of God. Everyone will one day stand in the presence of God and no one will be able to say, I chose you. I'm here today because I chose to be here today. Nobody will be able to say that. No one will be able to say, in wisdom, I reasoned my way into heaven. I worked my way into heaven. Or I inherited my way into heaven. Instead, it was all God's grace. He has chosen us and he has given us a new status. A new status. Look at verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. This is our new status. This is the first and foremost a reminder of God's grace toward us. If, if things that were not are now something, or to put it more personally, if we who were nobodies are now saints belonging to Jesus Christ, that means that you are now something, and that is due to God alone. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, because the Father has chosen you. Or as Jesus himself prayed in in John 17, verse 6, he says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of this world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Therefore, beloved... You are secure in Christ. You are secure in Christ. You are secure, safe in Christ. Remember this promise that Jesus made back in John chapter 10. He said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand and I and the Father are one. As Christians, our identity, our our security, it doesn't come from our status in this world. It comes from belonging to Christ and being being marked by the sign of a a cross-shaped life. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, see God, didn't, God didn't overturn the world's system. He, he, didn't, he didn't overturn the, the world's wisdom and, and strength and, and nobility just for the fun of it. God didn't upend the Greek culture in the city of Corinth, in those people, for the fun of it. He did so to bring salvation. He did so to make us totally and utterly dependent upon him. The crucified Christ is the the manifestation of God's wisdom. And the fruit of that wisdom is right there. Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. 
These are the things that we have in Christ. This is what Ben was talking about in Sunday. We never talk about this ahead of time. But the Lord in his divine providence brings these things together. And in Sunday school, Ben was talking about being clothed in his righteousness. That's what this verse is talking about. Because of Christ, we have redemption, sanctification, and righteousness. Before, we did not have them. Now we have received them. First Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Christians share in these things because we belong to the crucified Christ. We have no need for a celebrity to be our spokesperson. Praise God when he saves somebody famous. But that's going to be few and far between, most likely. We have no need for a celebrity to be our spokesperson because Christ is enough. His righteousness is enough. His sanctification is enough. His redemption is enough. And he's given us a new way to boast. He's given us a new way to boast. Look at verse 31. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Throughout these verses, um, Paul has had, probably, Paul has had Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24 in mind when he writes this. Listen to the, this is Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love justice and righteousness in the earth for in these things i delight declares the lord if we're going to boast we can only boast in what christ has done in what god has done that we know him that he has saved us that he practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth that he loves those things and that that is accomplished by christ on the cross we can only boast in God, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That he has saved us. And so if we're going to boast, boast in that. Praise the Lord that he has saved us. Pray with me. Oh, Father, we believe that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And I pray that we would, we would know how to boast in you. That we could say how great is our God. That we could even, as we think of the wonderful grace of Jesus, matchless grace of Jesus. As we think, Lord, of the mercy of Christ, as we think of the great love with which you have loved us, as we think of Christ going to the cross for our sins, Lord, that we might boast that we are yours, not because of anything we have done, but because of your great grace. Lord, that we may boast that we have been redeemed, that we may boast in our songs of what you have done, that as we even come to the table this morning, to eat and drink and proclaim Christ's death that we might say our God is great. Our God is mighty. 
our God has defeated sin and death. That we might come to the table, Lord, with hearts of thankfulness this morning. That you have chosen us. That you have called us. That you have redeemed us. That you are sanctifying us. That we are your people and you are our God. Father, I pray that you would transform our minds and our hearts today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.